We've been studying the Reformation in uh, our Sunday school, uh, adult Sunday school, and um, one of the things that sets the Reformation apart from a lot of other periods of history is that the men and women there who went back to the Scriptures found out that justification does not come through works, that we don't get saved through our works. We get saved by faith alone, through grace alone. And um, so certainly we've all heard that. We, we see that in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, that we're saved by grace through faith. But perhaps you haven't heard this follow-up phrase, and that is this. The faith that saves is never alone. It's true that we get saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. In other words, true faith responds in works. This is the message of James. Uh, we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 14. You can be turning there if you'd like to. Genesis chapter 14. But the, the message of James, the apostle, uh, that he writes in his epistle is that living faith is never complacent or inactive. In chapter 1, he says, living faith is expressed in works and responds rightly to trials. In chapter 2, he says, living faith is impartial with its love. It doesn't show favoritism. In chapter 3, living faith shows wisdom in, in its speech and conduct. In chapter 4, living faith avoids worldliness and pride. Chapter 5, living faith avoids greed, perseveres in trials, and depends on God through prayer. You see, the faith that saves is never alone. God didn't save us just so that we could get saved. He saved us to holiness. He saved us to God, apart from the world. That's what repentance really is. It's turning us from evil to God. And so if that's not taking place, then we never really did have true saving faith because true saving faith is never alone. And I believe Abram recognized this. Tonight we're going to see his ex uh, clear expressions of faith. Um, now we understand that Abram was not perfect. He didn't always do exactly what was right. But the general pattern of his life was that he did trust God. He did take steps of faith. We saw one of those last week when they had these uh, this conflict between him and Lot and he decides that, that this should not be something that comes between them, and so they decide to go two separate ways. And Abram steps out in faith, knowing that God is going to give him the land of Israel, which will later be Israel, and, and he gives a lot first choice. When if he did not act in faith there, he would have simply took it upon himself and, and chose his own land apart from Lot's desire. And every, he had every right to. He could have fought Lot for the land if he wanted to. But Abram stepped out in faith, and he does again here in chapter 14. So let me begin reading chapter 1, verse, verses 1 through 16. We'll, we'll get through the whole chapter, but, but I want to show you this first battle that takes place between these two sets of kings. Chapter 14, verse 1. And it came about in the days of Am Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Cheder Laomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, that they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, and with Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, and Shemabur, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. 
All these came as allies to the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea or the Dead Sea. Twelve years they served Cheder Laomer, but the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Cheder Laomer and the kings that were with him came and defeated the Raphaim in Ashtaroth Karnaim, and in the Zuzim and Ham and the Amim and Sheva Kiriathaim. And the Horites in their Mount Seir, as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishvat, that is Kadesh or Kadesh Barnea, and conquered all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who lived in Hazazon Tamar. And the king of Sodom, and the king of Gomorrah, and the king of Adma, and the king of Zebulim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, came out, and they arrayed for battle against them in the valley of Sidim, against Cheder Laomar king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, and Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of tar pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, and they fell into them. But those who survived fled to the hill country. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food supply and departed. They also took Lot, Abram's nephew, and his possessions, and departed, for he was living in Sodom. Then a fugitive came and told Abram the Hebrew. Now he was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and brother of Aner, and these were allies with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he led out his trained men, born in his house, 318, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against him by night, and his servants... And, and defeated them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. He brought back all the goods and also brought back his relative Lot with his possessions and also the women and the people. I think this passage as a whole, chapter 14, shows us that genuine faith is expressed in works. Two weeks ago, we saw a pitiful lack of faith on the part of Abram when he gave his wife to the Egyptian pharaoh's harem. Last week, we saw Abram's faith rejuvenated when he trusted God to give the land that, that had been promised to him. He, he gave it up as if, it, it was, uh, as if Lot could have it. So, um, he comes back, Abram comes back to the land of promise, and now there's this conflict between him and Lot, and, and when the conflict arise, arises, Abram allows Lot to choose his land first. And, of course, Lot chooses the area of Sodom and Gomorrah, which is actually south of Israel, south of the Dead Sea, and, um, and Lot gets the promised land, in effect. And, and really, we, we understand from Hebrews 11 that he technically didn't own the land. He was still a sojourner. He lived in tents uh, most, if not all, of his life. And so uh, he technically didn't own the land like Joshua and his men would own it. Uh, that was still to come. Abram died without having received the promise. <clears throat> but Abram's faith was expressed in works. And we see this not just in the, the story with Abram and Lot, but here in verses 1-16 through 16, as he goes to rescue his, his uh, nephew Lot. He participates in God's work. Let me try to set up what's going on here because perhaps you got lost in the first 12 verses with all these names and people and cities and things and and uh, so let me try to set up what's going on. You saw in verse 9 at the very end, the main thing that's going on, the very last few words, four kings against five. That's what you need to know. Four kings against five. The first group of kings were what we could call the overlords. 
Okay, the, the overlords. They were led by the king of Edom, Elam. You saw his name mentioned several, several times. Chedorlaomer. That's the king of Elam. So he was the head of the overlords. This included the cities of Shinar, Elasar, and Goim. So those four cities, they were the overlords. The, the petty kings, or the ones who were underneath them, were the kings of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adam, Adma, Zeboim, and Bela. Those were the five kings. So we have the four kings, the overlords, against the five. Um, all of the five kings, at least four of the five kings, would be destroyed in chapter 19 through... Remember when God rains down fire and sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah? All of those kings would die in that, in that battle. Uh, all, all of them would die except for... Uh, or at least they, those cities would be destroyed except for Bela. Now, the location of the war is found in verse 3. Okay, it says, All these came as allies to the valley of Sidim. That is the Salt Sea, or we could call it the Dead Sea. So there's a valley just southwest of the Dead Sea, and this is where the main battle took place. But that's not actually where it began. The, the, uh, we'll talk about how it begins, but, but the cause of the war really is because um, there was some defiance from these petty kings, the ones who were underneath the overlords. The responsibility was that these five petty kings were supposed to pay tribute to the four overlords. They were supposed to continually pay uh, some sort of, of, of money or, or good to them, like asphalt or olive oil or copper. And so these suzerain lords, these overlords, these four overlords, they, they take really control of these five kings and say, you are responsible, you and your cities are responsible to pay tribute to us. And so this was happening year after year um, uh, because the petty states recognized that they, um, they had nothing to do. The only thing that they could do is stop paying tribute. And what would that mean? That would mean that the overlords were going to come back to them and and make them pay tribute again, and that wasn't going to be pretty. It was going to happen through battle, and this is exactly what happens. These five petty states, which include Sodom and Gomorrah, the two most famous cities that you know of, uh, they had paid tribute to the king of Elam for 12 years. But, according to verse 4, on the 13th year, they rebelled. They said, no, we're not just going to give you, and you're not doing anything for us. We're not just going to give you our goods. We can use them our, ourselves. So on the 13th year, they collude together and say, you know what, we're not doing this anymore. These five petty states decide they're not going to do it. How do you think the king of Elam was going to respond to this? Is he going to be happy? Oh, well, you know what, I, I kind of got my share from them out of the 12 years that they served me uh, with their tribute. No, it was going to be war. It was going to be battle. And so he sought to subjugate them once again. And so they come down actually from the north, the northeast of Israel. They come down and they, they attack cities along the way that were, were opposing them. And they come down to the battle, which is at the southwest corner of the Salt Sea, the Dead Sea, and that's where they have their main battle. And, um, and as a result, we find out that in verses 5 through 7 that... that um, that the five kings actually lose. Um, 
uh, actually verse 8, and the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah and the king of Admon and the king of Zeboim and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, came out and they arrayed for battle against him in the valley against Cheder, Laomar, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elasar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of tarpets and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled and they fell into them, but those who survived fled to the hill country. So, the king of Elam and these other three kings respond and they take out all these victories along the way. The very first one that they take out is actually the Rephaites, which are, are the Rephaim. They are giants according to Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse 11. It said that their beds were 13 and a half feet long and 6 feet wide and they were made of iron. So these were large, large men. And, um, and the very first battle that they win is this, this one, the Rephaites in verses 5-7. through seven. So these are no weak armies. They wanted to show that we are not going to be defied. We are no small force here. Okay? We'll, we'll defeat the best of you. And so they defeat some of these other ones who had opposed them on their way to defeat these five kings. So they, they do their destruction all the way down. They get to the primary battle which happens in verses 8-12 through 12, and the, the five petty kings are being defeated, and so they flee. And verse 10 tells us that they fall into the tar pits, which are very common actually around the Salt Sea. In fact, if you go to the Dead Sea now, it is said that there are there's actually tar floating in in the uh, the water. It's it's the the most uh, it's the densest uh, body of water in in the world, and it's actually the the lowest body of water, lowest below sea level. Well. As a result of this victory, there are going to be spoils, right? There's all sorts of things that they can raid from the cities that they defeat. So we find that we find out about them in verses 11 and 12, the spoils that these four kings take, the overlords take. Then, uh, then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food supply and departed. They also took Lot, Abram's nephew, and his possessions and departed, for he was living in Sodom. So naturally, the conquering armies are going to loot the cities. They're going to, I mean, obviously when you have battle, the, the people scatter. They're, they're not going to stick around and, and keep everything. So they loot the cities, and, and this was part of what they earned from their victory. And they also take, uh, most notably, verse 12, this man, Lot, who was a citizen of, of Sodom. You remember, when Lot chose the land, we saw last week, he chose the land the, the lower valley down there, and he chose to live on the outside of Sodom, even though it was exceedingly wicked. And now what we find is that he's a citizen of the city. He's a citizen of this, the city of Sodom. So he's now living in this wicked city. And so he, Lot, and all of his family are taken along with their possessions. So this, verses 1-12, through 12, is all setting for us. Okay, Why talk about... All of these kings don't seem to matter a whole lot to the whole biblical storyline. All that it's doing here, verses 1-12, through is it's setting up what Abram is about to do. Setting up so that we can see Abram's faith. And um, so all of these battles and things are not critical to our understanding of God or people necessarily. It's setting up to what we're about to see next. Here we see what happens Abram's participation, his active faith in verses 13 through 16. Verse 13, he hears the news. Someone comes and tells him. He's probably about 20 or 30 miles away back in Mamre. Um, and um, 
And so, verse 14, he gathers his troops together. He has his own trained men. This shows how much Abram is worth, that he is no uh, minor figure in, in history here. That he has his own trained men working specifically for him. I mean, think about how much it costs for a country to train men to fight for it. I mean, it's a lot of money for, for our, to pay for our military, right? But could you imagine having your own personal military of, we find out, 318 people. So we see that, that, that Abram is a very wealthy man and, he, and these men certainly doubles as other things. They're servants of some way, but, but at the very least they were trained to fight. Verse 15, we find that Abram defeats them, these four overlords, which is quite amazing. Verse 15, he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. So the ambush comes. Abram actually gathers all of his men together. They go and attack them by night so that they will be unnoticed. And when they attack them, they win the battle down there, probably south of the Dead Sea there where this initial battle had happened. They're looting all the cities down there. And Abram and his men actually chase them up Israel all the way out north of Damascus. I mean, that's up in Syria we're talking about. So this is a pretty significant win for this small group of of men. And, uh, And Abram is able to win the victory. And there's at least three reasons why Abram wins. Number one, he gathers his allies. He doesn't just do this on his own, stand there with his sword and say, I'm going to win this battle. No. He, he, he gathers his allies, his men, his trained men. And also, the second reason that he wins is because he, did, he does it at night. Look at verse 16. He brought back all the goods and also brought back his relative lot uh, with his possessions and also the women and the people. That wasn't the verse I was looking for. Um, I think it's verse 14. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he let out his trained men, born in his house, 380, and went, as, uh, went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night. So he has a night attack with his allies, and we'll find out later when Melchizedek talks to him that the victory actually belongs to the Lord. So, so the real reason that he wins the battle is that he does express his faith, yes, but also that God gives him the victory. And if, if you know your history of Israel throughout the Old Testament, you find that that is the way that Israel ultimately wins its battles is through God's power. Well, Abram rescues, the, uh, Abram rescues the possessions and his nephew Lot and his family. And um, so he brings back the two main things that were taken, all the spoils from Sodom and Gomorrah and his nephew Lot. So, even though Abram uh, has received the promise of God, he doesn't sit back and do nothing. Abram could have thought, well, you know what? God has a purpose for me. And I don't have to be concerned about Lot. I'll let God take care of that. Abram gets up. He actively participates in battle. And um, he's not trying to, to overcome and gain more land through battle and victory. We'll see that later. He's, he's trying to defend his own family members. He ultimately trusts that God will give him the land. So what we find from Abram is that his faith is expressed in his works. He doesn't just sit back and do nothing because he believes in God. He, he in fact, gets up and, and, and goes to battle. 
But in addition to his participating in battle, he also recognizes that God accomplishes the victory. And we see this in verses 17 through 20. Then after his return from the defeat of Tiralamer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was priest of God Most High. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. He gave him a tenth of all. All right, so... Abram recognizes that God has accomplished the victory. In fact, Melchizedek does as well. And here, Melchizedek blesses Abram. Okay, you see that at the at the beginning of verse 19, he blessed him and said, "Blessed be Abram." Okay, so that's Melchizedek talking. He he blesses Abram. Now we need to understand who Melchizedek is in order to understand what what's going on here. Notice what he's called there in verse 18. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. King of Salem, and also he's called at the end of the verse, priest of God Most High. Now this is very unique to a person in, in uh, this time period of the Scriptures, that he would be both a king and a priest. Okay, He's called the king of Salem. Where is Salem? Now, perhaps you'll, it'll help you if you understand what Salem means. Salem is actually the Hebrew. It's actually our English translation of the Hebrew word shalom. Perhaps you know what that word means. Lots of Hebrew or Jew, Jewish people say that even today. They mean peace, right? So he's the king of peace, or the king of the city of peace, which is Jerusalem. Jerusalem. That's that's Melchizedek. He's the king of that city. He's the king of peace, but also. At the end of verse 18, he's the priest of the God Most High. So Abram comes and offers these gifts to him, recognizing that he is a kingly figure, that God has given him authority, and that he's a priestly figure, that he represents the true and living God. And that is why I believe at the end of verse 20, he gives Melchizedek a tenth of what he had earned. He gives him a tenth. And if you know your Bible, you know that this is the last, not the last time you hear about Melchizedek. Turn to Psalm chapter 110. Psalm chapter 110. A thousand years later, after what we're looking at, David talks about this king and priest, Melchizedek. Psalm chapter 110. And he and he brings up Melchizedek in order to point forward to the Messiah, who would also be, amazingly, both priest and king. All right, look at Psalm 10, verse 1. David says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power, in holy array from the womb of the dawn. Your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord has, the Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. You are priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of His wrath. Okay, so who is David talking to here in Psalm 110? 
Okay, if you go back up to verse 1, you can see that the Lord says to my Lord. Okay, Lord, David's talking about one of his descendants. Now, why would an ancestor ever talk about his descendants in the term of, of Lord? Why would he ever say Lord to one of his descendants? Isn't the ancestor better than the descendant? Yes, but not in this case. Because this would be a greater descendant. This would be uh, the, the descendant par excellence. And this, this descendant would rule, notice verse 2, with a strong scepter from Zion. Okay, So we're talking about a king. David is talking to his king, the Lord, the Messiah. Look at verse 4. At the end it says, You are priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. David recognizes that the Messiah, his descendant, that would come through David's line, that would be of the kingly line, would also be a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now what does that mean? Well, this is not the last time that Melchizedek is mentioned. Turn to Hebrews chapter 7 because we'll get a further window into who this man is and what this means for the Messiah. What he means for the Messiah. Melchizedek, Hebrews chapter 7. And uh, I wish we had time to read this entire passage, verses 1 through 17, but I'm just going to point out a few verses. Hebrews chapter 7. Verse 1, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils, was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness. That's what Melchizedek means. It means king of righteousness. And then also king of Salem, which is king of peace. Without father without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God. He remains a priest perpetually. And uh, he goes on and um, look at verse 11. Now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood is changed of necessity, there takes place a change of law also. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no one has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. And this is clearer still. If another priest arises according to the, uh, arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such not on the basis of who has become such not on the basis of law, of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. For it is attested of him, and then he quotes Psalm 110, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So, what do we learn about Melchizedek from Genesis? Or what should we learn? At the very least, what we should learn from, from Genesis, and most notably Psalm 110, is that he points... To Christ, here in verse one, he's called the or verse two, he's called the King of Righteousness. That's what his name means, and the King of Peace, the King of Salem. And so he points forward to Christ, but like Christ, he's not from the line of Aaron. That's what he's talking about in verses eleven and following. Normally, if you're going to be a priest, where do you come from? You come from the line of Aaron, right? You have to be from Aaron. In fact. 
in Ezra chapter 2, verses 59-63, a person was excluded from the priesthood if they could not prove their genealogy back to Aaron. Not just back to someone else, maybe one of their grand... No, all the way back to Aaron. If you couldn't prove that, you're not a priest. That's how serious this line is. God wanted to make sure that it was protected, but, but Jesus is different because He doesn't come from Levi's tribe, does He? He's not of the priestly tribe. That's what the writer of Hebrew brings out. He's actually from which tribe? Tribe of Judah, right? We saw that in Revelation chapter 5. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. So he's not a priest in that sense. He's not born a priest. But he is a priest, and this is why the writer of Hebrews brings this up in, in a couple of occasions. He is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Um, so how could be, he be a priest? How could Melchizedek be a priest? How was Melchizedek a priest? The point is, uh, we saw that at the beginning of the chapter, Hebrews 7, that he didn't have a mother and a father. It wasn't that he was created or something that he was not born of a mother and father. The point is, he had no record of one. He just comes on the scene, Hebrews or Genesis, 13, Genesis 14. We never see a genealogy that includes Melchizedek. He has no genealogy that takes him back to Aaron. And yet he's a priest. And so how can he be this? And I would say to you simply that he was chosen by God. How, how did Aaron, if you think about it, that's not too far from how Aaron became a priest, right? I mean, was Aaron of some special line? Could God have chosen anyone else other than Aaron? Absolutely. You see, both Melchizedek and Aaron were both simply chosen by God. And so when when Melchizedek is brought up, he's brought up to be to point to Christ that he is both a king and a priest. He has a special uh, dual office that he holds, like Jesus Christ. And uh, we will find out. Uh, well, you'll, if you know your prophets and um, and and your gospels, you know that Jesus also carries another office, and that is the prophet. That he is prophet, priest, and king. So turn back to Genesis 14, because um, I wanted to show you how Melchizedek is important to all of Scripture, that he does point to Christ, he's chosen by God, he stands uh, as king over God's people, but also priest, he, he mediates between man and God, and Jesus in the same way does that. But let's see what Melchizedek contributes to this story of Abram and his faith. Verse 19, He, Melchizedek, blessed him, Abram, and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Melchizedek was a man of God. He pronounced blessing on Abram. And notice his focus. It's on God Most High, who is the possessor of heaven and earth. He recognized that, that Abram had been delivered in battle by God. He calls God, God Most High, verse 18, uh, uh, verse uh, 20. And he calls him, uh, verse 19, God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. He recognized that God owns it all. And so here, we see that Abram gives a tithe to Melchizedek at the very end of verse 20. He, Abram, gave him, Melchizedek, a tenth of all, or a tithe. 
This shows that Abram saw him as his spiritual superior. He recognized that what Melchizedek was saying about his victory was true. Now, I could go into a long discussion about whether we uh, should tithe or not, and I've done that in other passages. That's not the issue of this story. That's not what's critical to understanding what's going on in the story. So I'll save that for another time. All that you need to understand is that Abram recognized God's hand of victory in battle, and so did this king and priest, Melchizedek. And so as a result, Abram paid tribute to this king with a tithe. And Abram's faith is further seen in his acknowledgement of his prosperity. Verses 21 to 24. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours, for fear you would say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what the young man have eaten and the share of the men who went with me, Aner, Ashkel, and Mamre. Let them take their share. Okay, the third way that Abram acknowledges or expresses his faith is by acknowledging where his prosperity comes from. It's, it's very interesting the differences between these two kings. King Melchizedek, king of, of Salem, comes and the very first thing he says is, blessed be God, blessed be Abram, and blessed be the God of Abram. The very first thing that the king of Sodom says to Abram is, give me. Give me, give me the men and you can take the, the spoils. All right, give, me, give me the men and you can take the spoils for yourself. Um, this king of Sodom, whose name was Bera, we found out earlier in the passage, had no recognition of God's hand in this. He was not thankful to Abram. Uh, it's very businesslike. He wanted to, to gain further ground and, and he recognized that Abram actually protected him. Remember what was happening to the king of Sodom before Abram came on the scene. Okay? He had defied the king of Elam, Elam, not paying the tribute, and now he's being chased by him. And Abram comes along, finds out about it, and says, no, this is not going to happen. And my nephew is a part of that city. And so he defeats these four kings. So the king of Sodom actually was indebted to him in some way, and yet there's no thanks here. There's no recognition that God's hand was involved in this. He just simply wanted to um, to make Abram his ally so that if there ever was another time when Abram was needed, he would come to his rescue. And Abram's response is very clever and helpful um, for our own faith. Notice he rejects what the king of Sodom offers in verses 22 through 24. He declines. He says to the king of Sodom, verse 22, I have sworn to the Lord God most high possessor of heaven and earth that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours for fear that you would say, I have made Abram rich. Abram declines his offer. He says, I'm not going to be dependent on anyone else other than the Lord. Now, if he would have accepted the offer, then he probably would have received in return protection from Bera, king of Sodom. So that if Abram were ever in trouble... Sodom would be his ally. I mean, think of where Abram was. He was waiting to receive the land of promise, but he was still a tent dweller. And if he would have allied himself with all these powerful kings around him, then he actually could have forcibly gained the land of Israel. 
Now, he probably would have had to share it with all these other kings that he, he gained the land with. But see, Abram recognized that God was going to give that land to him in his timing. And so Abram was not going to rely on military power. That's not why Abram went into battle here. The reason he went into battle was really defensive. It was in order to protect his own family, Lot. It wasn't in order to gain more land. In fact, if Abram was so concerned about getting that land on his own, then he could have destroyed all these people. He could have started allying himself, allying himself with these other cities who were would contain lots of armies. He was relying on God instead. And so there are a lot of things going on in the story, but what is at the center is not the tithing, it's not the battles, it's not the spoils, it's not Lot living in an evil city. Those all are true, and those are all in there. But really at the center of the story is Abram and his faith in God. You see, faith is not nearsighted. Faith looks beyond what is temporal to what is eternal. It doesn't focus on objects that are that are clearly seen, that are perhaps look like obstacles in our way. Rather, faith faith is on future things, on what God has promised. And and technically faith is in one object, one person. And that's the person that's mentioned a couple times here in the conversation. That is God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And Abram wanted to know, wanted people to know that his prosperity did not come about because of other men. Look at verse 23 again. I will not take a thread or sandal thong or anything that is yours for fear you would say, I have made Abram rich. Abram saying, I'm not taking any handouts. I want everyone to know that God was the one who prospered me, that gave me all that I have. And so all he would take, verse 24, was his the food that was eaten by the 318 men and his men back. That was it. You see, Abram, although he recognized that God was working through him, he also saw that he was not at the center of God's program. In the sense that, okay, um, if, if I fail to exist, God's plan fails. You see, Abram was not the only called out one. He wasn't the only one who believed. Melchizedek had also come to know God, didn't he? And he came to know God apparently apart from Abram. And so Abram saw that God was much bigger than his little clan. And we ought to recognize that Abram and Melchizedek were only preparing the way for us and um, would, and that Abram would be a blessing to his descendants certainly, the Jews. And through the Jews, we would be blessed. So again, um, I think one of the applications that we can draw out of this passage is that we must have an eternal perspective, not a temporal one. And perhaps you're sick of me saying that. that That's your answer for everything. You always have to have an eternal perspective. But I think I have biblical grounds for saying that. Jesus and the apostles were constantly pointing believers to have an eternal perspective. Set your mind on things above. We read this morning, Colossians 3. Okay? Don't fear who's going to kill your body. Matthew chapter 20, I'm not sure, 22 or something like that. Where Jesus says, don't fear those who kill your body. That's temporal. Fear those who can kill your, fear Him who can sit, kill both body and soul in hell forever. Okay, so 
So there are multiple illustrations or uh, examples in the Scripture where Jesus and the apostles tell us to have an eternal perspective. Paul used a running illustration to try to help us. 1 Corinthians 9.24 Do you not know that in a race all the runners compete, but only one receives the prize? Run so that you may obtain the prize. In other words, how many people win a race, Paul says? Well, there's only one. And when people run in the race, what do they do? They run to have fun? Well, there are people like that. But, but usually, when it's a competitive race, it's to win the prize. And what he's saying is we need to run as if we're winning the prize. We need to have an eternal perspective. And we need to fix our eyes on the prize and not on the, the hurts, the aches that we have while we're running, the shin splints that we're getting, the, the, the lack of hydration, and so on. We, we keep fighting. We keep running. We keep working. We keep fixing our eyes on the final goal. And I think that is critical. And that's why I think Abram was such a man of faith. That's really what faith is. It's putting your eyes on the eternal things, not the temporal ones. Putting your eyes on what God has promised. I'd like to take a a moment here now to encourage those of you who are older. You've lived a long life. You've perhaps done a lot of great things for God. But I would encourage you not to let your guard down. Don't stop running the race. The race is not over for you. Keep running in such a way that you are going to win the prize. You might think, well, it's too hard to change right now. All of my change has come in the past. And this is the way I'm going to leave this life. Don't give up now. Keep changing. Keep going. Don't give in. Don't give in to the mindset that there's nothing else that you can do for God. There's nothing more that you, there's no more growth in godliness that you can have. Don't ever fall into that trap. I think that's exactly what this world would like you to think. That you've done enough. You've arrived. What current responsibilities do you have? Are you fulfilling all of those? As an older person in this church, are you fulfilling all of your responsibilities? Are you helping to train the younger generation, perhaps your kids, your grandkids, children in this church, younger adults in this church? Are you helping to train them, to, to show them, to mentor them, to help them see that, that, that this race is worth running and that this can be run with joy and this could be finished strong? As young people, we see so many people give up at the end. There's so many of, of, of people who we looked up to f- for all of our lives. And at the end, they lost heart. Don't be like one of those. They finish strong. Continue on. Keep pushing. Keep, keep growing in your faith. Keep changing. And I would say to all the rest of you, that you must walk by faith. Believe in God and in His promises. He's given you all that you need to follow Him and He's given you all that He's wanted to give you. And so, walk by faith. This earth and the things in it are passing away. Think of all the things that will be here a million years from now. Okay, What kind of things will those be? If you're living for those types of things, 
Okay, the things that will be burned up, then you're not living by faith. You need to live for the things that are most important to God. So fix your eyes on what is most important. That is God and for us, His Son, Jesus Christ. The author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross and despised the shame and is now set down on the, at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, there's a principle at work in the Scriptures. And that is that you suffer first and then there's glory. doesn't happen in reverse. Even for Jesus, right? Okay, Jesus was exalted as, as God of the universe. He, he took part in creation. It says nothing was made without Him. But when was He most glorified? When will He be most glorified? I believe it's still to come, but, but when was He most glorified? It was actually at His greatest suffering. And the same thing is true for believers. Don't expect that you're going to receive glory if you're not suffering for Jesus Christ. Suffering first, then glory. Okay, we go through the battle first before we enjoy the spoils of war and before we enjoy the, the pleasures that God has for us. So keep fighting. Walk by faith and not by sight. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the example of Abram and uh, Sarai. We're going to see more about the two of them and their faith and how they trusted You even when things didn't uh, weren't completely clear, when things didn't make complete sense, like when he had to, was told to sacrifice his son. And uh, so we're thankful for examples like this. But we're most thankful for the example of Jesus Christ who is our King, and our priest who stands between us and You. And He provides a way for us to have access to Your throne. And as the writer of Hebrews says, we can come boldly before Your throne of grace now. No longer do we have to go through a priest once a year and bring an offering and a sacrifice. But now we've had the sacrifice once for all. Jesus Christ and He forever lives to intercede for us and so we can boldly come before Your throne. What an amazing privilege. Very rare in human history. And, uh, and so we're grateful for this opportunity. May You help us to take advantage of it, to, to pray for our own hearts and the hearts of believers in this church and others. May You help us to, to grow in our, our faith May we not give up. May we not give in. We want to be examples for others to follow. And uh, sometimes we want to enjoy the pleasure of, of being recognized without ever doing what is right. And so we pray that the most important thing in our hearts would be to do right. Desire to, to know what you want and then to do it. And that is not an easy task. We need the help of your Spirit we need to grow in faith. We, we do that as You bring trials into our lives and allow us to walk through them and be able to see Your hand of mercy upon us and to see that there are more important things in life than health and finances and uh, perfect relationships. We recognize the most important thing is our relationship with You. Help us to live in that way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.